This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Hey, Connie. Hey, Brian. Um, Dave Birch has finally succumbed to doing the podcast by phone. We were trying to hold out for a physical get-together. It's so much fun to dine and uh, talk with him all night. But hey, that's not on the agenda for, uh, might I suppose, the foreseeable future. So, and I, we, you know, we talked about this. We wanted to catch him in the wake of his new book. Hey, that's a coincidence. I'm just reading his latest book and I can't wait to get in dialogue with David. Okay, so well, what we'll do is let's open the mic and uh, let him roll on about life currently off the road. Um, probably ongoing digital identity debate and maybe what happens to all these digital currencies and more. Is that a plan? Sure, let's go. All right, take care. Bye. Talk later. I got a black magic woman. got a black magic woman. Yes, I got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can't see But she's a black magic woman And she's trying to make the devil out of me Welcome, David. Good morning. Why did you choose this music? What, what makes this a perfect Saturday morning track for you? Well, it's because... Um uh, I, I don't know if younger people would remember him, but Peter Green, who was the original lead guitarist of Fleetwood Mac, uh, died a couple of weeks ago which is quite sad. And so I've been listening to a lot of Fleetwood Mac music, really, because I, I, it's a great band. I think they, they went a bit downhill after Green left, which was in 1969. But, uh, you know, lots of people like them. So Okay. Hey, and, and Dave, uh, looking back on this particular week, what particular news caught your eye? Uh, actually, this week I've mainly been focusing on um, some identity-related issues in, in the UK, the government published its uh, the response to its consultation about digital identity. So um, uh, you probably haven't kept up with this because you live in a rational country that has uh, plans for this sort of thing. But um, but here the government had uh, a national digital identity scheme uh, called Verify, which hasn't really worked. And so um, they asked for consultation. I don't know why they call it a consultation because they never listen to anything I say about these kind of things. And they published the response to it, which basically says we're going to have uh, a department which will create a committee to look into the terms of reference for a study that will establish the parameters for the bounds of a new initiative to consider the spectrum of possibilities for a number of different organisations that might, at some point in the future, be able to create a framework uh, which will... And so on and so on. So basically, they're stepping on nothing. the gas. I take it yeah. they're really stepping on the gas. They're this really stepping important. on the gas. This so, will slide Anyway, so uh, so this week, I you know I've been doing some responses to that, and um, I'm I'm involved in a couple of projects. Uh, actually, not in the UK at the moment, in in North America and also in Australia, and so I've been I've been looking at. Um, you know some some opportunities around those kind of things as well. So yeah, it's a right. You know, even though I'm still locked down, and even though the Zoom psychosis is getting worse every day, um, <laughs> it's okay. actually not a bad week. Not a bad week. 
Dave Burge barely needs an introduction in the fintech scene. His curiosity, his insights, expertise, wit and pen have earned him a seat at many boardroom tables as an advisor, visionary, antagonist or sparing partner. Over the last few years, Dave continuously hit the road, keynoting at many events. His content and moderation style took care of packed out conference rooms and continuous dialogue around virtual currencies, digital identity, payments and commerce. Always relating tech to history and everyday life, he makes the complex accessible for all. Something that also follows through his many books, Identity is the New Money, Before Babylon and Beyond Bitcoin, and his latest, The Currency Cold War, about cash and cryptography, hash rates and hegemony. David, welcome. I was welcome. very much looking. Thank you, guys. It's lovely to talk to you. Yeah. So shall we immediately dive in, Dave? Uh, because sure. I was very much looking forward to uh, this Finta Cappuccino because you have in common with our previous guest, Oliver Bullo, that the current AML system is broken. The last couple of years, the regulators fined banks about 28 billion for money laundering and European banks spent about 20 billion on AML on a yearly basis. But nevertheless... Around $2 trillion is laundered per year and only 1% to 3% is stopped. So Oliver does not believe that technology is the answer on this one. But what's your view? Well, I mean, I understand the magnitude of the problem, which I think I'm not sure if everybody does. So the banks spent, you know, $20 billion on AML and the banks got fined another $20 billion. And I think the Europol figures, I, I don't have them in front of me, I'm remembering this, but I think the Europol figures are that something in the region of 0.15% of the criminal fraudulent money was intercepted, which is effectively zero. So we're spending an enormous amount of money, as far as I can tell, on, on essentially nothing. And the 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 impact of this on the day-to-day, so for, the, for the average law-abiding Person, Like if, if Connie goes to the bank to open a new savings account or something, it's a tremendous hassle and you've got to mess about with ID cards and passports and letters and all sorts of things. There was a thing in one of the newspapers here uh, recently, um, a woman trying to get a mortgage with she and it took nine separate forms of identification before she could before she could get a mortgage. I mean, the whole thing is a is a mess. So it doesn't stop the criminals and it annoys law-abiding people. It just, it cannot be right. And I think the reason for this, uh, and I, this is why I think, this is why I think the technology point is, um, you know, deserves exploration. I think the reason for this is because what we've done is we've essentially tried to automate a money laundering system that dates, you know, essentially from Edwardian times. You know, like you, the bank, most of the people at the bank are nice chaps. And if you if you do something a little bit, you know, they'll fill out a form. And, and I can't remember in the UK, but there's thousands upon thousands of suspicious transaction reports are filed. What they do with them, I have absolutely no idea. And we have a system which tries to build barriers to stop the bad guys from getting into the system and fails. They do get in. And then once they're inside the system, we have this strange way of trying to monitor it with transaction reports and so on. And I can illustrate this point with a a real story. So in the UK, it happens that in the UK, 
um, there's a large Somali population. So as a consequence, the remittance corridor from the UK to Somalia is very important to the Somalian economy, people working here and sending money back home. And a few years ago, uh, because of the, you know, the crackdown on, on bank uh, KYC and so on, the banks gradually withdrew from that corridor. And then it got to the point where there were no banks supporting those. And so what happened? So, so did people stop sending money to Somalia? No, they didn't. What happened was the money still went to Somalia, but it went in crates of, of 500 euro notes from Stansted Airport. So we went from a situation where we had at least some limited knowledge of, of what, what was going on and where the money was going to a situation where we had no knowledge of what was going on because all of the money was outside the system. And I don't, I don't want to make a point. It's not particularly about euros, but if you look at the figures for the number of high-value euro notes in circulation, the number of $100 bills in circulation, it's astonishing to me that in the US there are more $100 bills in circulation than $1 bills in circulation. You have to ask in circulation. I mean, none of this stuff's in circulation. It's stuffed under drug dealers' mattresses, you know. But if you look at those figures, it's very clear that the system isn't working. Now, if you think about where technology has come on since those, those you know, I mean, we're, we're on AML5 now, and we're heading towards AML6, which will be even more expensive to, to implement. Since then, we've invented computers and laser beams and, and transistors and all sorts of things. So there has to be a better way of doing it. And my suggestion would be stop trying to keep people out of the system. You know, basically, stop trying to keep criminals out of the system. Get the criminals into the system because now we have artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics. You know, it's much better to have all of the transactions in the system. And then we can use our AIs and MLs. Uh, you know, the ML models to try and look at the suspicious transactions. You, you don't need to know if, if you don't know who I am, right? But you notice that my account is sending money to a cave in the Bora Bora Mountains once a week, then you can focus your law enforcement activities on me. And yep. it then wouldn't take very long to find out who I am because you can go by IP addresses and yeah, we'll talk this identity that. piece in a minute. Yeah. So the so the current system is like let's build a wall to keep the bad people out, and then try to have suspicious transaction reports and so on once they're inside. A better solution, in my opinion, is to actually use the new technology. Don't have walls to keep them out. Get them into the system so we can see what they're doing. And then use the new technologies of artificial intelligence, machine learning and data analytics to spot the bad guys and actually do something about it. You know, so I, I just I think technology does have. But, but we need to we need to rethink the way we look at AML. We do. And I think uh, to, uh, this, this is a perfect bridge to um, your latest article that I read on Forbes about uh, digital identity. Obviously, we've all found out in the recent times that digital is sort of going to be more or less of a savior. But at the heart of every transaction we do circles this whole digital identity debate. And you were telling us earlier about the UK and people make it. People, again, try to automate existing processes and ways of looking at identity. And... Um, you really sort of um, talked about a different way of looking at identity. And 
I thought it was also very democratizing the way you looked at it, because you say, rather than saying, this is my name, my date of birth, this is I'm Connie Dorstein, I'm a white female, I was born in a privileged country like the Netherlands, so that already, just purely by my ID, puts me on a particular stage in life. And you said, why not look at identity by tracing and capturing my behavior and see how I've behaved through life, what I've done with it, how I behave online. And that builds an identity that for most things that you want an identity for is much more valid. So I have two questions to you. Uh, first is, do we need to look differently at identity eh, rather than this is how you, and where you were born and this is your color, race and age and sex and this is it? Uh, so looking differently at technology, at identity, digitally or not? And then secondly, do you think that a new way of looking at identity really has a future, or am I too sort of promising, highbrow, hopeful? <laughs> no, look, I think, I think if you... Almost all of the interactions we take part in on a daily basis... We, we use identity as a proxy to get access to some other credential that we actually want. So, so I come to, to do some sort of transaction with you. You want to know who I am. You don't really want to know who I am. What you want to know is, where do I live? Or am I over 21? Or am I a member of this club? Or am I allowed to this website? Or whatever. And because we don't have a system for managing those credentials... We, we rely on identities. And, and the, you know, the example that everybody uses all the time, but it's a good example, is, you know, when my kids went to the pub, they had to take their passport with them to prove that they were over 18 to get a drink. And actually, who they are and their nationality and their date of birth, and this is nothing to do with the pub. It's none of their business. And if that information is captured and recorded, not only is it an invasion of privacy anyway, but it also makes identity theft worse because it means there's even more places that people's personal information can be stolen from. So the idea in cyberspace that you go to the bar and you prove that you're over 21 without disclosing your name, your address or anything else, and in particular without disclosing your date of birth or your age, this is the kind of stuff that you can do using cryptography. This is the kind of stuff you can do in the digital space that you can't do in the physical space. And so actually, I would argue that it's better online than it is offline. And so the idea that, uh, that you can actually construct digital identities for this new world that aren't just sort of copies or shadows of the identity we have in the offline world, but something better is very interesting to me. And I think a couple of things have happened recently. I mean, the reason why I wrote that piece for Forbes was because of Apple moving into that space. And I think, you know, if you pride yourself on being able to do scenario planning for customers and, and a, a little bit of strategy work, I mean, I can show you things from a few years ago talking about this, but it's just me, you know, so I can say... I really think we should look at moving towards these new models. And you'll be, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll come back to it at some point. Yeah. But when Apple says they're going to do it, that changes people's views and it changes the priorities. So on the one hand, there's Apple doing it. And by the way, I couldn't resist. I was posting it around on, on uh, LinkedIn a few days ago. But, yeah. but Apple uh, posted a, a job. They have an open vacancy. Yeah. 
<laughs> product manager. For, for product manager for identity at the moment. And in the job description, it very clearly says, you know, the goal of this is to replace physical wallets. Well, if you're going to replace physical wallets, almost everything that's in my wallet is nothing to do with payments. Almost everything that's in my wallet is driver's license, health insurance, yep. loyalty cards, you know, British Airways. It's not payments. Just to tease you a bit now, um, I can remember many conferences where you said, leave the identity bit to banks. So what is your stance now if you say, do you trust uh, Apple more with sorting this bit out than the banks? No, well, Apple is being very clever, as you'd expect. So Apple doesn't want to, Apple doesn't want to do the KYC. What Apple wants to do is to, is to you, you go to the bank and get KYC, and then Apple will store the credentials in its wallet. So the banks, the banks get left with the costs of KYC, and Apple controls the connection with the customers. So what, yeah, what, what Apple is doing is very smart, right? Yeah, but didn't you say that we could trust banks to do that for us, be the custodians of our identity? I do, and I, I, I stand by that. You know, I think banks should have gone into this business. I remember, Joe, we, we, we spoke, was it Antwerp? I think, I can't remember. I remember speaking at a conference with you a couple of years ago. And to make it a fun example, we were teasing the audience about um, internet dating and using the example of, yeah. of where, you know, where, where, where the frauds and all the problems come from the fact that nobody knows who anybody is. If the bank would just tell you know, match.com or whatever, that you're a real person. If they just said that you're a real person, that would solve 90% yep. of the problems. Yep. And that was a fun example. And that I thought that illustrated quite well. I thought that illustrated quite well that there was an opportunity for banks to turn this into a business. But, but they haven't done it, you know. And so they can't really complain when people like Apple and Google step into this place. And what will happen, you see, a bit like the kind of App Store and Play Store, is that because Apple and Google will find a way of storing these standardized credentials, Apple and Google are both members of the W3C Verifiable Credentials Working Group, then a market for those credentials will spring up. So, so when you go to the bar and the bar wants to know whether you're over 18 or not, if you can imagine what's going to happen, <clears throat> the guy at the bar, his phone is going to ask your phone for those credentials. Your phone might have 20 or 30 of those and it will present them to the to the bar and the bar will choose one of them that it knows and trusts and so on to validate and away you'll go. And the bank simply yeah. won't be part of the transaction yeah, and just, anymore. And just a bit they need to know. Dave, um, something, um, something else. I've read your book, uh, The Currency Cold War, Thank you. and I loved it. And, um, and I understand the drives for change. That That's I, very kind. Thank <laughs> you. I really loved it. And, um, but I also understand that the drives for change, um, uh, which you describe in your book, is that everybody's fed up with the dollar dominance. Yeah? And that also the current state of technology can support digital currencies. But the change you predict in your book, when will this happen? you think? Because... Yeah. Shout out to Crystal Ball, Dave. It's, um, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Brian. You know, I guess when I started writing the book, it was a little bit more speculative and futuristic. Um, 
<clears throat> by the time the book came out in March, I, I'm very thankful to the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party because they launched a fantastic marketing campaign for my book. <laughs> you know, I didn't know, but just at the same time my book came out, Chinese digital currency went live in four big cities in China, which um, yeah. which changed the complexion of things. And now you see the research papers and the discussions that are coming from the central banks. It's a lot less speculative than it was when I started writing about it. So when it's going to happen, I think, is a lot sooner than I probably thought when I was writing. I, I probably thought I was writing, you know, about the sort of three to five year horizon. That's, you know, because when, when you're doing strategy work for for certainly for the big, you know, banks, whatever, what they're interested in is, is the like the three to five year range, like where we need to change strategic plans, where we need to sort of look at kicking off projects and things like that. So I tend to think in that sort of time scale. But actually, you see the pressure beginning to rise. And I think some people are now starting to think, well, actually, if there is a Chinese digital currency and people in other countries start to use it, uh, that means we really should get our act together and do something about it. But it's soon. Yeah, so, and you, so, yeah. you see the work that... I mean, I'm not just saying it because I'm English, but the work that the Bank of England's done in this area, I think, is really, really very interesting, looking at the different options for implementing and what it would take to get it off the ground. And actually, the Bank of England's original study on this, which was, I can't, it was two or three years ago, I can't remember, uh, they were talking about digital currency giving something like a 3% boost to GDP, like a permanent 3% GDP boost. And right now, we really need we a need GDP that. boost. You know, yeah. So the, the priority that's gone up. But of course, the other thing, and you know, it's the elephant in the room, we can't avoid talking about it, is the virus. Yeah. And the virus has accelerated the trend away from cash. Yeah. It's highlighted the lack of identity infrastructures, particularly around government support for businesses, the, the identity of businesses and the relationship between individuals and businesses has proved problematic. There were some figures in the UK. The government is saying it, it thinks that probably 10% of the money that went in business subsidies were, was lost to fraud. I, I would be staggered if it was as low as 10%. I mean, my, yeah. my guess is that it's probably in the news. region of a third has yeah. gone. So, so Dave, you know, on, on the one hand, yeah. you've got China, and on the other hand, you've got the coronavirus. And those yeah. two things have accelerated the transition. They haven't created it, but but they've accelerated it, you know, way beyond what I was thinking when I sat down to write the book. Yeah, and I think it really also circles back to sort of one of the points I want to briefly touch on with you is that um, I've been doing a lot of work with the national news radio, business news radio here, and you hear all the analysts still talking up all the stock and telling us that things aren't as bad. But if you speak to the man in the street or the woman in the street, it literally is like... It feels like the gap between what we call the markets, supported by you know an invisible, an air balloon-filled dollar, uh, and the real economy. What is your uh, take on that, or am I too gloomy? <laughs> no, I think you know, uh, you know, the the the, <clears throat> the kind of the American phrasing of that, the gap between Wall Street and Main Street, yeah. is 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 definitely widening. Um, and I think the coronavirus, the coronavirus has created some sort of fracture lines. So 
for 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 people like me, sort of reasonably comfortable middle class people, um, you know, I'm told you can't go anywhere. You have to stay and work at home for the next year. Well, okay. You know, I mean, I'm not going to starve. I mean, obviously, <laughs> my speaking business isn't what it used to be, but I'm okay, and I have a study, and I don't live in a mansion, but I have a yard where I can go and sit in and read books in the sunshine. I mean, it, if I never went to an office again, I wouldn't really care that much. You know, it's okay. But there's another half of the country who have been on furlough, who are whose jobs are now disappearing as the shops and the pubs and the restaurants close and don't reopen. And the impact of that fracture is, I think, you know, pretty serious. Now, I'm not an expert on political economy, but it seems to me that, and you might think this is a superficial way of putting it, but the old divisions between what you might think of as middle class and working class are being replaced by divisions essentially between the old and the young. So people who are old, who have their pensions and they have their money in stock markets and they have property, we're okay. I mean, I'm not, but other people are. Um, Now, we're we're going to help you with that one. (laughs) We're going to help you with that one. But the thing is, (laughs) but you have to see, Connie, for for Christopher, you know, for, for my son who's working at home today, Getting started in the workforce, oh, getting onto the house and that, it's a really difficult proposition. That is and also, my main focus at the moment. One thing that came up, you know, I was talking about this with somebody else last week, which is very true. So if you and I were told we had to work online for a while, I mean, we've known each other for years. I mean, you and I can work effectively together online. We know each other. We, we can understand each other's views and perspectives and we can be very productive working together online but that's because we had years to build up the social capital that we're now spending through zoom right for our kids if they're not going if they if they're not going to be in that kind of workplace what, how are they going to build up this capital absolutely you know uh, what what did you learn when when you first went into the into your first job connie like what did what did you learn? Did you learn from sitting? No, you you learned from standing around the coffee machine. You learned from sitting in meetings, watching how other people behaved. You learned from from picking going to up, lunches, picking and out things, the brightest right? bosses. Yeah, and that's you know that's really <laughs> hard out to the replace. Brightest bosses who would challenge me because then I could learn more. But one advantage is that you have time to read, right? So. Um, question for you dave um, for me yeah yeah so well read and watch things on netflix yeah <laughs> but, uh, about the reading um so um i told you and uh, i'm not exaggerating I, lo- i loved your book and it's brand new um so if you could you give us you know our listeners maybe two minutes on your view why they must read the currency cold war we're helping you here with a promotion you are well it's very timely but i i think basically the book covers three things which i think you know a lot of sort of general business readers are interested in at the moment so first of all i do spend some time just explaining what digital currency is because i'm a horrible nerd about this sort of thing it drives me crazy when people talk about stable coins when they mean currency boards and i hate it when they talk about you know, currency baskets when they mean reserves and all this kind of thing. So, exactly. Yeah. And I also, I want people to understand that the the whole kind of cryptocurrency blockchain thing is part of an evolutionary tree. I think there's there's a whole group of people who think it was a sort of a revelation from God and have founded a new religion around it. And I want to show them, 
there are some people in this room, Connie isn't one of them, who are old enough to remember Chipper and Chipnip and all these kind of things and DigiCash. So I want to show people that digital currency is part of an evolving tree. So I try to explain that. In the second part of the book, I try to explain why it is we're talking about it now. It's not because I'm talking about it. It's not because technologists are talking about it. It's not because the Bitcoin crazies are talking about it. It's because bankers are talking about it. That's 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 the difference. You know, there was a big break point last year between the old thinking and the new thinking when Mark Carney, who was at the time governor of the Bank of England, stood up and said, we really do have to start thinking about some form of uh, currency reform. Uh, I think his phrase was the destabilizing dominance of the US dollar. Now, that's not some Bitcoin kid saying that. That's the governor of the Bank of England. And that, and, and that was a break point which said, now is the time to start talking about this seriously. And then in the third part of the book, I tried to explore what it might mean. And I thought it would be interesting to use, you know, because there's different possibilities. There's public and private, Eastern and Western, this kind of thing. And I thought I would use... Uh, China, because I didn't know they were actually going to go live with it at that point. But I thought I'd use the Chinese digital currency and the Facebook digital currency to illustrate the different possibilities between private and public and, and so on. And that turned out to be a lucky guess because that, that was the right pair to do it. And so then and then I finished with a little more sort of speculative stuff about where it might go in the future. So that that's that's really why people should look at it, I think. This is so but, much you know, more than two minutes, Dave. This is so much more. more. People should be using the lockdown <laughs> to read more everything. Read more all read the time. Read more. Yeah, Absolutely. True. So Dave, finally, last point that I'm gonna ask you. Building up on your social capital, because yes we have a lot of reserves, but we need to top it up. Um, so if you're allowed, if you're let loose and you can travel internationally again, where do you want to go first? Other than the Netherlands? No, Netherlands is good, good answer. answer. Of course, I want to come to the Netherlands first. I uh, well, obviously, it's, it's sort of if you look at the dynamics, business business in North America is good. So, irrespective of pandemics and things like that. So, actually, in business terms. Uh, my first my first stop will be back in North America again. In fact, I, I have a flight to the US booked for next month, but I, I, I'm very doubtful I'll be allowed to actually yeah. take yeah. it. As Europeans are not allowed in, but you might be. For people wanting to lecture themselves and others on anything digital money and identity, I suggest you follow Dave closely on Twitter, on Forbes, and through his book. And if you're curious about uh, all the papers Dave spoke about in the podcast, we're going to post those links online. And his music favorites Dave brought with him, check out www.fintechcappuccino.com slash David Birch. Dave, thanking, thank you for joining us here at this very virtual kitchen table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you for listening. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please give us a like, a review, so many more Fintech Cappuccino lovers can find us. Please join us again on Saturday morning at 9. We'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Have a good weekend. Thank you so much, Dave. Well, thanks, guys. You made it easy for me. It was fun. Keep a distance and stay close. Oh,